up next on the Parth and Pratham show. So essentially the problem is that like people think that these are implementing racial quotas, but it's not going to, it's just, they want to use race and ethnicity as like a factor in their admissions. They just want to take that into account. It's not like a one and done thing. It's not like the most important factor that's going to go into admissions. It's just another way that they want to really take into account like the context of a student's education and the way that people are like misconstruing that sometimes on purpose, sometimes just because they're uninformed is really like sometimes offensive to like the black community, especially, but also it's just disappointing to see like that people really, a lot of the opponents of this bill just really don't understand it. It's a Parth and Pratham show. Hello all, welcome to the special edition of the Parth and Pratham show. So today we're hosting a moderated roundtable discussion regarding Prop 16, which is going to be voted on by the people in November. The ACA 5 bill put Prop 16 on the ballot calling for the repeal of the 1996 Proposition 209 to basically put back the consideration of race and gender in public institutions, not just college admissions, but also state contracting and hiring. Sean, a little bit more about how they're all connected. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so yeah, as you said, uh, the state legislature voted on ACA 5. It was a uh, legislature-referred constitutional amendment to repeal the 1996 Proposition 209, which was put in place by the voters mm -hmm. of California. That proposition basically said we could not take race or gender into consideration in public institution hiring and admissions to schools. So now Prop 16 is on the ballot. It goes, because the legislature referred it to back to the people to vote, it goes back to the people and we will make a decision as a state whether or not we want to repeal the uh, provisions of Prop 209. Awesome, thanks you, Sean. You just heard the voice of Sean Kumagai, the Dublin City Council member and the Northern Chair of the uh, California Democratic Party uh, Asian Pacific Islander Caucus. Also joining us for today's conversation are Ananya and Ria from the Dublin Political Coalition. Thank you for having us. So uh, give us just a little bit more of the facts on um, uh, ACA 5, Prop 16, and then maybe the history of affirmative action in general. Oh, okay. So um, affirmative action has had like long-standing controversy, not only in um, California or the Bay Area, but nationwide. So affirmative action um, to some is kind of the preferential treatment of certain individuals, often minority groups uh, in college admissions. Um, but it's also important to note that of course Prop 16 affects all statewide institutions. Um, but most of the conflict and controversy that's been coming behind Prop 16 and ACA 5, especially in Dublin, um, in the Bay Area, has come in regards to um, the college admissions process. So if we look at kind of what Prop 16 would do, it would repeal um, 09, right? And say that, you know, no longer is there going to be this kind of blind treatment uh, towards our students who apply um, in our state schools in California. So that's the UCs, the CSUs, and Community College, alongside other hiring um, in the statewide um, organizations, institutions, et cetera. So, as a Dublin student and as a California student, I have observed, especially when ACA5 was 
kind of at the top of everyone's mind, then moving down to 16, um, a lot of like misinformation, a lot of conflict, a lot of controversy. A lot of students at Dublin High have seen um, kind of it being um, against them, and I'm putting this in air quotes for those who can't see, because um, it kind of comes with a lot of um, conflict certain communities, often Asian communities, who do consider themselves right, uh, communities of color, see it as um, they're being actively discriminated against, which, you know, once again, some people see it that way, whereas other groups see it as the necessary um, policy decision to kind of uplift um, communities that have been historically discriminated against and oppressed and not given those same opportunities. Also, an economic um, consideration comes into here, which I'd be kind of happy to talk about later on along in our discussion, where the argument that certain communities have been historically um, economically suppressed, don't have the same um, resources in the um, high school and college admissions process, and that kind of factors into affirmative action as a whole. Okay, awesome. So you talked about some a little bit about the controversy surrounding Prop 16, right? And then also prior to ACA 5, right? So uh, you talked about specifically in Dublin. So what movements in specific are you talking about and how do they affect people in Dublin itself? Right. So I'm not sure if our listeners or maybe people in this conversation have heard about the kind of Instagram group or account called Asian Students at Risk once named Asian Students Matter. Um, they essentially posted um, about how this ACA 5 and now Prop 16 is going to put a quota on Asian students, um, limit them from being able to attend UCs, um, essentially kind of causing fear and hysteria amongst students. Um, also, there was the argument that using the name Asian Students at Risk, and sorry, before that, Asian Students Matter was kind of a way to value or take away from Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. So that was certainly one big group. But on the other hand, I know Dublin High has a large and loud voice of students who are very passionate about so social justice. So we've certainly seen a lot of students step up and say, and talk about actually how completely disagree with the account, um, kind of talking about how these policies are required for us to undo generational disadvantages against certain minority communities. Um, and talking about kind of how Dublin, I mean, obviously we have a large population of Asian students, um, but maybe our black community or our Latino community is not as represented and we need to speak up and stand up for them and not allow them to be um, kind of disrespected. Because I do know that a lot of students, especially the more, um, upset ones with ACA 5 and Prop 16 certainly um, may have been speaking disrespectfully, which is obviously not something that we would ever advocate, um, which is another reason that, yeah, education is needed. And just talking more about the controversy, there have been many petitions of uh, that have been signed by people who actually want to vote no on it. I have one pulled up here. It's called Vote No on Proposition 16, and it has 141,000 uh, 141, signatures. And they talk about how um, MLK had a dream where his four children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and how this goes against what California is proposing in the bill. So you're talking about how 
people are a little bit misinformed. So Sean, Ria, do you guys want to hop in and just give a little more information on what systematic changes this bill will make to the whole procedure? Yeah, I was going to say things like that petition that you're talking about, I feel like similar to like that Instagram um, account that they did name, I think Asian Students Matter, like Ananya said, it's just a lot of ways that some people are using to kind of like capitalize off of much more serious movements. And like, not only is it really disrespectful, but again, like she alluded to earlier, it is rooted in a lot of misinformation. I know one thing that I saw that account had been like spouting that a lot of students actually believed just because I guess like they didn't know enough to realize that that was completely false. But some of these accounts were claiming things that like, um, if we repealed Prop 209, that like it would uh, implement racial quotas and things like that in like the University of California admissions, which simply is not true. Like affirmative action does not necessarily mean race quotas. And in this case, it wouldn't be. A well-managed affirmative action system really just takes race and ethnicity into account and honestly, like with the amount of educational inequity in like um, public education and even in California, it's, it just helps them like have a more holistic view of their students, which is always what the UCs have prided themselves on. So essentially the problem is that like people think that these are implementing racial quotas, but it's not going to, it's just, they want to use race and ethnicity as like a factor in their admissions. They just want to take that into account. It's not like a one and done thing. It's not like the most important factor that's going to go into admissions. It's just another way that they want to really take into account like the context of a student's education and the way that people are like misconstruing that sometimes on purpose, sometimes just because they're uninformed is really like sometimes offensive to like the black community especially, but also it's just disappointing to see like that people really, a lot of the opponents of this bill just really don't understand it. Yeah, and what I would say is that um please help to shut down any misinformation. I think it's, I wanna recognize the fact that uh, the Asian community, there are some in the Asian community that are upset about this and that's okay. I mean, I think the API community also has some subsets, um, uh, well, and the whole API community to some degree that have been marginalized over history. So there is a history of marginalization there and so I understand the sensitivity to this topic, but uh, there is no such thing as racial quota. That was struck down in 1978 in a case called University of California versus Baki. And uh, they stated that quotas went too far in establishing what's known as a system of st strict scrutiny. So there's no way that quotas are gonna come back. <laughs> I mean, that's been determined for a long time. That's well established being unconstitutional. There are 42 other states that are practicing some form of affirmative action programs in their state programming and public uh, education and, um, and employment. So there's a lot of case law. There's a lot of history about affirmative action programs that work, that are working. There's lots of dad data that shows that um, uh, agencies, organizations that apply these types of policies have success and that it benefits the API community. So uh, I, I think when, um, I think this is being used as a wedge issue and a lot in the API community are kind of biting into this fallacy that it's somehow pitted against them and it's not, and it's not unconstitutional. Otherwise it would have been challenged in those other 42 states uh, there is a limit to what we can do with affirmative action programs. And, you know, that will be likely uh, worked out over time. 
Okay, uh, you said there were 42 um, other states impl implementing a form of this. Um, what specific policies, and maybe we can go behind the um, proposition, what specific policies is um, the state of California taking, what have, what have they been inspired by from other states? Well, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I think the state as a whole, if this passes, the state as a whole and all of the agencies and organizations that are subsumed under it will have to, to decide how to best implement affirmative action programs. Uh, what I will say is that um, it will look probably very similar to what's already in place. You know, I know that a lot of parents and a lot of students are concerned about admissions policies, right? Well, the UC system already has something called comprehensive review. So this idea, it, it's kind of a false narrative to say, oh, we just want it to be based off of GPA and test scores, which by the way, are probably the most, two of the most unfair ways to judge a person, right? Um, that's just not the way that it's done anymore, right? Schools are not just looking at a GPA and a test score. They're looking at the whole student within the context of their learning and living experience. That's called comprehensive review. Race and gender would be one small factor in that overall consideration if they started to introduce that into the formula. So, you know, a lot of it is also programs for outreach and for understanding, um, you know, collecting data about where we stand as a, within our various agencies in terms of employment rates and access to education and finding ways to promote access to those opportunities within certain communities that are underrepresented. Yeah, um, and I would also love to like add to this, especially when Councilmember Kumagai talked about, you know, GPA and test scores, especially with test scores. So I'm sure a lot of students like reading, um, watching this event, um, are familiar with College Board, standardized testing and the like. And obviously, like College Board, though a nonprofit organization, makes millions off of their students, right? The CEO um, of the you know, organization has been known to make a seven-figure salary. So obviously, like financial like, um, resources are a large part of someone's performance when it comes to standardized testing. Um, not just in the actual test itself, paying the fees for the test. So, um, you know, we do have... Um, fee waivers. Fee waivers. All right, let's try that again. Um, so, while they do have fee waivers, um, being able to pay for prep programs, prep books, being able to know that there's a parent who's gonna drive you to the testing center every day, these are not um, like sure things for every student. And this all factors into college admissions, admissions process. And I think a lot of students or people that maybe very, um, have a very strong opposition to affirmative action might not realize that in the bigger picture of college admissions, there are people that have active difficulty just getting to the same level, having the same resources as them. And there is the argument, um, I guess there's two arguments that can kind of side, which is one, that affirmative action kind of deals with this issue all the way at the top. And by what, what I mean by that is that if we have um, discrimination or, or inequity all the way through K through 12 schooling, and affirmative action kind of addresses that at the end. So why can't we have, you know, greater programs for the K through 12 
students. And while obviously like someone can understand that from a theoretical standpoint, like execution, funding, those are all quite difficult to find. And people have been trying these policies for years and years, and obviously it's easier said than done. And then the second argument that's used, I believe, is that if we do affirmative action, we are going to be letting in students that are, you know, woefully unprepared for the institution. And I believe that whether or not you believe either of these two arguments, there's ways to address that argument um, without A, spreading misinformation, as Councilmember Kumagai said, but also without being flatly disrespectful um, and being inconsiderate of kind of lives and difficulties that other communities or other people or other students face. These are your peers, right? And like going back to what we talked about, um, with, you know, these Instagram accounts and the student kind of uproar that happened when ACA 5 first you know, made headlines was a lot of students in their sudden, you know, anger or upsetness, and like Councilmember Kumagai said, may be justified, but you just do either vitriol or be unable to understand what, you know, greater socioeconomic factors at play. I feel like that is far more inexcusable, and that's something we should be actively working towards fixing. And I agree with that. Just looking at the petition and a couple of things they listed on there, the last thing that I read on there, it says that the bill that was proposed is unconstitutional, which as Councilmember Kumagai talked about, is just flat out false. And so a lot of the misinformation and the things that people say when they like are in a state of anger is what is causing so much commotion around the bill. Because once you take the time to go in and actually understand the parts of it, you can see that it isn't that big of a deal that will affect every single person in some huge massive way. And can I just say that, um, sure, there are policies that may push the boundary and be ruled unconstitutional. That's what happened with quotas, right? They put quotas in place. It got challenged in court. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's unconstitutional on the terms of uh, equal protection clause, right? So, uh, it's not to say that there this is going to be a one and done thing. It's going to be an ongoing conversation about how we address systemic racism. And, you know, that's, that's a topic that has been brought to the front of our minds right now. Uh, what I would say um, to, uh, to my fellow APIs, Asian Pacific Islanders, is um, please do not misappropriate things like Martin Luther King Jr. to make your point. It's really kind of distasteful and pretty disrespectful. Um, you, can, you can talk about the merits of this policy without doing that. And um, I'm pretty confident that if MLK Jr. were still alive, he'd be a proponent of Prop 16. I'm just saying. I think it's also worth pointing out, oh, I know a lot of people have commented on this like already, a lot of proponents of Prop 16 point this out, but a lot of like, again, like Asian Pacific Islanders, they feel like it's like going to like discriminate against like their entire community, which of course, as we've all been saying, blatantly untrue, but also in a lot of ways, like even representation in the Asian community can be improved dramatically through affirmative action. Marginalized groups like Southeast Asians especially are mentioned a lot in these conversations. They often get left at the sidelines and affirmative action does help like all like racial minorities, not just African-Americans and Hispanics and Latinos. So I feel like that's also a misconception that not everyone in the Asian American community always knows about or 
talks about. And let's not forget that gender is also part of this discussion. And um, uh, we are you know, falling behind in creating opportunities for women-owned businesses. And the wonderful thing about women-owned businesses is they tend to hire more women. So it's got a compounding effect on how it uplifts and raises women into positions of um, economic status. Um, would it be okay if I posed a question? Great. Oh, and you know, I'm unsure of this myself and I wanted to know what some of the members of this discussion kind of think about it. I guess the argument has been brought up that we understand that, um, you know, financial insecurity is a large part of affirmative action when it comes to college um, acceptances and admissions. So if this is the case, um, I guess I'm pretty educated about this part, why can't we use, um, and I know UCs might already do this to a certain extent, as Councilmember Kumagai once said, but um, how come we can't use, you know, family income in place of pure, like, race? And I know a lot of other students have the same question, so. Um, well, my opinion on this is, like, family income kind of it matters and it does matter a lot in terms of like where you reside and how many resources you get but um just in the specific area things like racial equality as well as gender also do play a part into it so like even in dublin people who like i i would have to say like in just the stem program in dublin there's not equal representation for women in it right and so even though you might be have a high income you there are still gender and racial factors that tie into it that's a good point and there are studies that show that even um people who have the same income that race has played a factor into their access to opportunities um you know looking beyond even just public institutions thinking about how public policy is set up and how a history of uh, barriers to access to housing opportunities has really disadvantaged um, black and brown communities. Uh, what I would say is that um, I also think that we need to not be wasting too much energy talking about how we carve up the pie and talk more about how we grow the pie. I, I think that um, overall, when you talk about, for example, um, uh, college admissions. You know, we should really be talking about how do we get more funding into the public education system? How do we create more programs that are going to benefit everyone, particularly uh, marginalized and socioeconomically disadvantaged people? Uh, that's really where we should be focusing our time. And I think that um, we have to acknowledge that race is a factor. There are people that are alive still today that you can talk to in real life who were part of a segregated school system. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how recently it was. Um, and opportunity and generation of wealth happens over the course of multiple generations, right? So when you think about people who are still alive today, who are barred from opportunity, it's gonna be generations before they catch up and have that kind of growth of wealth and growth of opportunity within their family. Okay, good works. Sir. All right, so I'll lead off um, this question. Ready? Um, 
Okay, so we've been talking a lot about Prop 16 and its effect on students, but let's expand out to other individuals in the California population. How would Prop 16 affect them? Uh, you know, there's, um, in addition to education systems, Prop 16 would also allow the, the consideration of race and gender in government contracting, as well as government jobs. Um, I think there's also arguably some room for government programs that would uh, also benefit um, uh, in areas of um, private enterprise, right? So you could create, for example, uh, programs that would better benefit certain uh, race, ethnic groups, and, and genders. Um, you know, just as, a, as an example, uh, you know, pathways to uh, government service within agencies, uh, it would create additional opportunities there. And government contracting is a really big thing. What they have shown is that in large cities, for example, like San Francisco, which because they're in California, can currently not take race and gender into consideration under Prop 209 provisions. Uh, when they compare them to different cities of similar size, such as Atlanta and Chicago, that have uh, these types of um, affirmative action programs, they have found that Asian Americans are disproportionately disadvantaged in these, uh, in these settings. So allowing race and gender to be uh, taken into account uh, for government contracting is going to do a lot to grow uh, small business or uh, small businesses, but also just uh, women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses. In your opinion, what group would be the most affected or have maybe the most different circumstances um, from Prop 16, either positive or negative? Who will have like the biggest change? Well, I mean, yeah. Not only does it help like small businesses and um, you know individuals, but also um, and I do think that like, if we look deeper into not only just affirmative action, but also the way this policy would um, benefit our um, state and our community, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done that isn't always, you know, presented. Um, so yeah, that was just something I wanted to bring up. Okay, well, I just think in, I'm pretty sure it would be the people who are brought up. So people who are um, in socioeconomic struggles or people who, are like disadvantaged based on like race um, or just where they live. And I think it will have a positive change for them because it will bring them up and help um, provide them with more monetary assistance as well as help their entire family go out and basically prosper in the future. Yeah. I, I certainly um, feel, I'm, I'm sorry. I certainly feel that like, um, Parth was saying these kinds of things like snowball, right? So if we consider that communities of color, disadvantaged communities, or you know, women have been disproportionately negatively affected by certain hiring or um, college acceptance or whatever policies in the past, if we take an active step towards you know maybe changing that, even if people see it as kind of maybe like a huge change now, a huge shift now, these um, things they grow and they cycle off of each other. So as we get more um, black and brown um, communities access to these jobs and hiring um, and these UC um, you know, degrees or CSU degrees, 
and their families and future generations will be able to benefit from this. And I think that's an active part of how we kind of address um, generational um, you know, disadvantages or socioeconomic oppression. This is a large part of how it's done. Um, and I guess this is kind of the bigger picture, right? So if we think maybe a little less from how is this gonna affect me and more is how is this going to affect our communities um, in the future and make it so that future children won't have to, you know, face the same rather than maybe 100 years ago or maybe 50 years ago or 20 years ago did. And um, certainly I feel like that's a big part of it. And I would say just simply, who does it help? It, it helps, it's gonna help who it's designed to help and that's women and uh, minorities, people of color. Um, it's not, we're not establishing policy though here. So it's gonna be an ongoing conversation about one, how do we collect the data about how uh, uh, people are affected by race and gender? What kind of ideas can we come up with to offset that effect? You know, here's a good example, and, and I want to caution too, we're not just talking about socioeconomic disadvantagement. We're also just talking about people are being judged by their gender or their race, and that's, that's barring them from opportunity. Take um, boardrooms, for example. I mean, there are plenty of qualified women who have gone to Ivy League schools, who've done everything, but yet when we look at boardrooms, they're still underrepresented. Right, so how do we put programs in place? How do we put requirements in place so that we get equitable representation throughout uh, these opportunities? Um, it's, you know, again, it, even if you're, you're black or brown, even if you come from maybe a, a place of, of, of uh, economic privilege, you're still going to be disadvantaged based off your color skin until we, until we get better at that as a, as a society. Yeah, I actually really appreciate um, Councilmember Kumagai saying that because just speaking like anecdotally here, like um, as obviously like a female girl, um, someone who is you know active in politics and um, you know actively being involved, forming you know starting meetings, starting events, organizations, programs, and obviously like I founded the DPC. I have noticed that. There is a certain, um, especially like for women in politics and girls in politics, especially in Dublin, um, we are a very like STEM focused area, but there is a certain kind of, um, I don't know, me and Rhea are the only two that I know that are kind of really active in politics. A lot of you know, events that we run, debates, um, programs that are specifically politics and not social justice are surrounded by, you know, um, men, males, boys, you know, guys. So I do think that like that's a very valuable thing because I do think I was you know speaking about this economic disadvantage, but he's right. Like um, these are things that are just inherently in each person that we are um, kind of discriminated against, whether that be overtly or not. I think um, yeah, that's a really important part. And Councilmember Akumagai has done a really good job this entire conversation of being able to make sure that is stressing more than the race side of it is also stressing the gender side of it. And that's something that I think goes um, forgotten. Right. So what are the next steps for this proposition? What is in the hands of the public now that they have to do with the proposition? 
uh, um, obviously just to vote. I'm gonna kind of, uh, you know, uh, promote my, or the DPC's event. Me and Rhea are on September 9th at 6 p.m. Um, doing a virtual event where we go through every single proposition of the 12 that California voters can vote on. It's open to, you know, Dublin High School students and um, general community, Tri-Valley, Bay Area. So we would love to see people, you know, come. We're going to talk about each one in depth, the prevailing arguments, uh, those for and against. And we will be taking, you know, audience questions and comments. So I think a big part of this is like what we've been saying this entire conversation is just educating ourselves and making sure that A, misinformation is dispelled and B, that, you know, we take an active part of democracy and we vote. So, yeah. Um, and where can people find your virtual events? Is there links? Right. So on our website, uh, DublinPoliticalCoalition.org, we will have a page dedicated for it. And um, I'm sure I will um, help Karth and Pratha maybe link it in the description of this episode. Yeah, and on top of just voting, as Ananya and we stressed in the past, there's a lot of misinformation going on right now. So educating yourself on the topics, taking the time to go online, do some research, see what's going on, what is politicized, what is not, what is the fact, what is fiction. Just making sure you go out there, do your own research, and then make your own informed opinions. And what I would say is, um... Thank you to you guys for engaging on this topic. Thanks for putting together uh, that event where you're gonna go through the propositions. I look forward to coming and hearing the arguments for and against each. I, I, I went uh, two years ago and it was very informative for me. Um, have conversations with your friends um, and uh, all of you with your, with your parents as you go to make decisions about this very important topic. I think Prop 16, it's time for us to to um, overturn Prop 209, and so voting yes on Prop 16. Um, but I understand, you know, this is a very complicated and sometimes emotionally charged topic. So be respectful with one another, uh, talk about the facts, and, um, you know, be inquisitive and, and, and learn as much as you can about it. But let's keep having the conversation. Do you have, do you guys have any final thoughts you would like to add to, um our audience listening about anything we've discussed today, any final thoughts? Um, whether you stand um, for or against, or you're not sure, um, you guys want more information available for you. Um, not only are reading events, but you know, a quick Google search, kind of just what everyone's already said. Um, yeah, we hope to make, I know Dublin a little bit more politically active. Uh, 2020 this fall and we hope to see i don't know people taking more of an involvement and an interest in the policy and the decisions that affect them so awesome we had a great time good episode everyone thank you for coming on thank you for having us thank you yeah thank you guys <laughs>